Hello, welcome back to the Road to Rescue here on on here on uh, the Parable of the Vineyard, and I'm Sean Griffin. I'm joined here with my incredible co-host, Ken Heiderbrecht. Sean, we uh, we also co-host another show called Honor of Kings, eh? That's right. And I have oh. to have to remind myself every episode which show am I on right now? <laughs> so, <laughs> I know so sometimes, sometimes I... it, can get, it can get confusing because we we talk about a lot of the same stuff on each on each show and so and we're you know we're always making up scripts and stuff like that for the presentation and stuff so it's just sometimes it <laughs> i forget too what, what are we doing on our kings tonight or are we doing the road to rescue tonight but. yeah and it's it's a lot of fun regardless man we just just get to dig in study the scriptures and see what they say not not what sean says not what ken says but let's see what the word says and that's just that you know what we've tried to do here on the road to rescue is exemplify all the component pieces of the day of the lord right this is the return of our savior yeshua hamashiach jesus of nazareth this is the return of him prophesied throughout all the prophets and there's so many descriptions of how he returns and all these all these things that go into this day in the scriptures called the day of the lord yeah and that's the whole premise behind this show and why we named it the road to rescue because it's we want to talk about all the constituent elements that take place on the day of the lord and yeah as, as part for the course for this show we're going to do that again tonight with this this topic about the new covenant so that's right so that's why we said we titled this one are you in the new covenant because um there is we're going to go through the scriptures tonight that describe and define the new covenant and what that means to the day of the lord because it actually, believe it or not, just in case you've never had anyone say this, or heard anyone talk about this in a sermon or a teaching or anything, it matters. The day of the Lord and the new covenant go are synonymous, and it matters. So we'll just we'll jump right in, Ken, if you're ready. Yeah, I'm totally ready. And Sean, I just wanted to say that this it was this discussion, this topic on the new covenant that kind of solidified. Um, how do I say it? Not my trust in you as a brother. But this is kind of something that we rallied behind early on a few years back when we first met was this idea of the new covenant. I thought I was the only one literally on our earth plane that was questioning whether or not, you know, what is this covenant jargon all about? Am, am I missing something here? Why am I seeing some things differently and in opposition to what, you know, the mainstream theological perspective is? And then, you know, we, we kind of met online and you were, you were asking the same questions too. And we were coming to a lot of similar conclusions. So I gotta say, man, this is this is kind of that moment. This is the discussion where uh, I had to say, this is Sean Griffin is is number two on the earth that believes what I believe with regards to this. So, <laughs> well, I, honestly, though, we you know, in the past few years, we've ran into many scattered brethren um, online that have have been asking the same questions, you know, yeah. and that they're now asking because they start to see the glaring potholes in the in the traditional teaching, and so that's why we're you know. We're putting on our hard hats tonight. We're cracking open the word and we're coming in with a shovel full of gravel to fill in those potholes. And that gravel is full of the scriptures. Um, thanks for humoring the bad little analogy there. But the point is, um, we're, we're trying to do this from scripture. This is not Sean and Ken's opinions. We're just going to define from scripture the details of the new covenant in comparison with the old covenant. And then we're going to draw a conclusion here at the end of the show. So make sure to put your comments down below. Watch the whole thing. Um, whether you disagree or agree, that's fine. You can hit the like button if you agree. Hit the disagree button, uh, which is the thumbs down button, if you don't agree. And that's okay. Ultimately, though, uh, we appreciate you being here and testing the word with us. Uh, we just ask that you refrain from any derogatory or off-topic comments in the questions 
or in the comments section in the video, uh, just simply because it's not edifying to anybody, not even to you, the person typing it. So uh, just be kind, treat everyone with love. And that's what we ask for the comment section. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, I think right. I'm going to, I'm going to pray real quick. I think we'll start off with a quick word of prayer yeah. and then we'll get going. Absolutely, bro. Yeah. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to have access to it in these days. And Father, I just thank you that we have brothers out there that are taking advantage of the ability to, um, you know, study your word, Father, because it's so readily available. We have so many translations and so many copies and so much access to this information, Father, that there's really no excuse. And so I just thank you that there are brothers out there that are willing to sharpen iron and to test and to be Bereans. And so I ask that, Father, that we would do that tonight as well. And that um, everyone that may be watching, whether now or later on, Father, would just, um, yeah, in like manner as the Bereans, just test what we have to say, see if they line up with what the scriptures say. And so, Father, I just ask that your spirit would be among us and that um, at the end of the day, we just want to know what the truth is. And we want to proclaim that truth to the nations, Father, as a, as a bright and shining light. And uh, so we thank you so much for, for your word as it's you know, bread to us. It's nourishment and um, it's amazing. So we just thank you for that. Yeshua's authority. Amen. Amen. All right. So the first, uh, first verse that we would like to discuss is actually probably the most famous, right? Ken, it's just the, every, when everyone says the new covenant, most of the time they're going to start quoting Jeremiah 31, right? Yeah. That's the go-to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to do my best to um, try to see if I can share this so that everyone can follow along. Yeah, Jeremiah 31 is that's the chapter that really, you know, threw me off a few years back when I was trying to understand covenants. And uh, right. there's a few verses as we're going to discuss tonight that I was just. You know, the more I learned that I wanted to take the scriptures literally and understand, you know, the timing of things and take that literal, I had to, I had to question some of the stuff. And so, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Ken, it's not going to let me, I think it's because I'm from the, I'm from an admin standpoint here uh, with starting the chat itself. It's not going to let me screen share safely. So okay. um, are you able to erase the URL yep. and pull up the, the slides that we have? Absolutely. I'll do that right now. Just because there are some antagonists out there. So, okay. Just want to make sure this is working. All right. How's it looking on your end, Sean? Uh, on my end, I see, brother, I see um, your screen has three different windows in it. Okay, good. So, yeah, I'm just looking at the live video there and it's, it's working. So, I'll start here with the first slide here. Are you in the new covenant, John? Once again, great uh, graphics here. Good job pulling this together. So we got Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man, his neighbor and each man, his brother saying, know Yahweh 
for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Oh, brother, are you there? I think Sean may have gotten the boot. Am I still on, guys? Can you see anything in the uh, on the chat there? I think I'm on. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll just continue going here, guys. Um, so, as I said, that was the passage that uh, really made me question. You know, I had to scratch my head a little bit there and say, well, what the heck is going on with, with some of these latter verses here where it says that everyone will know Yahweh in that day and there will be no one teaching each other anymore how to know Yahweh, right? Which, in my opinion, we're doing that literally right now as we speak. Like yes. we're living, breathing, <laughs> in the moment, um, prophetic, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Sean, are you back? Oh, sweet. Yeah, I'm, I'm back, brother. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry that the thing glitched. So we're back online. But um, yeah, absolutely. Just as you read, we're still teaching each other to know the Lord, to know Yahweh. And that's, that's right. That That is the introduction of the Father. That's not the introduction, by the way. That's just the, repeating through the prophet Jeremiah, this idea of the new covenant and giving us some qualifiers of what it's going to look like. Yeah, so exactly. what, what possibly in Scripture have we read that would tell us that we're going to get to a place at some point where we don't have to teach other people to know Yahweh, that everyone from the greatest to least is just going to know him. What other scriptures? No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I worded that a little poorly. Um, I'm just saying like, can you, can you hear me very well, Bill? By the way, there seems to be a lag. Yeah, a there's a lag. I, I'm, there's a bit of lag here going on. It's hard to understand what you're saying here. You're cutting in and out. Okay. It's not my computer. Okay. Um, all I'm trying to say is that uh, in this scripture here where it tells us that the prophet Jeremiah has given this concept here of the new covenant that the Father's going to make with people, and uh, the, the immediate qualifier he gives to explain this new covenant is that people, well, <laughs> he's going to put their law within their heart and write it on them. He will be their God, and they shall be my people, right? That's something he goes over. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother to know Yahweh, for they will all know him from the least of, of them to the greatest of them. And he will forgive their iniquity and their sin. He will remember no more. Okay, so these are huge qualifiers. The biggest one is the laws in their heart is written within them and on their heart. And he will be their God and they shall be his people. Now, we actually see that terminology of I will be their God and they shall be my people. We see that terminology in other places um, throughout the scriptures. And we're going to go through those those verses here in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, but like I mentioned, Sean, the, the one that really stood out to me when I first started to test this was just the whole, everyone will know me, right? You were not going to be right. teaching each other anything anymore. You're not going to be splitting off into multiple denominations and, and you know, spitting vitriol at each other and telling each other, you know, this is how you know, know Yahweh. No, this is how you know Yahweh. And this is, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, That's to me, right. that was the indicator that there's no way if that's the one of the parameters that stood out to me, if that's, you know, within this new covenant concept, which I'm going to take literally, then how can we be in that day? That's right. So, and part of knowing Yahweh is understanding his law, his instructions for living, uh, because that's how he literally defines walking with him is to walk in his commandments, his, his ordinances, the terms 
of the covenant. And that's where if he's going to take the terms that were given for the old covenant, he's going to write them on our heart in the new covenant so that that's we, right. so that they're already on there. We don't, we don't have to learn them anymore. Right. So if you, if you, if you're out there listening and you're like, but it's already written on my heart, I believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, cool. Recite uh, Leviticus 17, 11 right now without looking. Or, <laughs> well, and they will, they will not. say that they follow the spiritual application of whatever I know, law that I know. may be, right? So, obviously, these all these different episodes that Sean and I, you know, do on this channel, it's it, you have to understand all these other constituent parts of what this day of the Lord is all about, right? So, you have to understand the first resurrection, you have to understand what we're going to become at the resurrection which is all part of what we're talking about with this covenant, right? Where we're literally going to have the law emblazoned upon our heart where we can no longer ever literally transgress. Where right now, guys, I will admit I'm a transgressor. Yeah. So yeah, we, I'm, we, I'm doing what, Yeah, exactly. I'm doing what Jeremiah 4 says and circumcising my own heart right now, right? Through the sanctification process, through being discipled, through learning, through prayer, through striving, right? Through running the race. But along the way, I'm transgressing the law. So I can say nicely that, yes, the law is on my heart. I can say that, but it's not literal because it, I believe yeah. that that's a literal application of what you know this new covenant is all about. So, Yes. So let's look at uh, further examples here in Enoch chapter 60. And if, Ken, if you'll be so kind, if you're able to pull that up for me, brother. Yeah, totally. In a, in a Sorry, my, I don't know if it's my computer that's lagging behind here, but. All right, Enoch 60, 4 to 6, it says, And Michael sent another angel from among the holy ones, and he raised me up. And when he had raised me up, my spirit returned, for I had not been able to endure the look of, the, of this host and the commotion and the quaking of the heaven. And Michael said unto me, Why art thou disquieted with such a vision? Until this day lasted the day of his mercy. And he hath been merciful and long-suffering towards those who dwell on the earth. And when the day and the power and the punishment and the judgment come, which the Lord of Spirits hath prepared to those who worship not the righteous law, and for those who deny the righteous judgment, for those who take his name in vain, that day is prepared for the elect, a covenant, but for sinners, an inquisition. So this the wording here can be a little tricky, but what it's talking about is it's basically saying that these are the these are the things for those who reject the Father. Um, this day is prepared, and it's an inquisition that they're going to get right. They've taken his name in vain. His name is his authority, so they've taken that in vain. They've not respected it. Um, they've not you know respected the righteous law, which is God's instructions to us for living, the terms of the covenant, the commandments He's instructed us to keep. So therefore, by behaving like that, they've overall rejected His authority, which is the one who commanded that. That hence the term commandments. <laughs> That's right. Right. So, but it says on that day, though, for the elect is prepared a covenant, but for the sinners is there's there's an inquisition ready, right? And this is where you know there's um it's not going to be something where they they don't get the new covenant basically. Yeah. So where where in scripture do we have this idea of there being yet another a newer covenant even? You know, if we're already in the new covenant and it apparently got inaugurated in the first century when Yeshua was at the last supper there and he was saying that the new covenant of my blood is in, in this blood and he's doing the Passover there. Where do we right. see anywhere else in scripture that there's yet another covenant to happen in the future? We don't see that. Because this verse here is from Enoch 60. So this was written before the flood. 
right. And this is telling, the, and he's actually talking about the day of the Lord in verses four and five. We're talking about the, you know, the quaking of the heaven, the commotion, and this day of mercy is merciful and long suffering toward those who dwell on the earth, and the day of power, punishment, and judgment come. And yeah. so, as Ken's talking about, this is Enoch talking about the day of the Lord and connecting this covenant with the day of the Lord. Yet we have people already claiming that the the Passover supper inaugurated a new covenant. Actually, they don't even technically can. Some people say that, and other people say it was his resurrection that put us into the new covenant. And I'm like, yeah. well, here's the deal. The Father has a long-standing history of how he does things. And one of the ways of how he enacts a covenant is through a covenant meal where he tells you what's going on. And he tells you, this is why we're having this meal. Do you want to be in this covenant or not? So right. that didn't happen at the resurrection, and that didn't happen at the Last Supper because the Passover already has its own explanation and already has its own significance. That's right. It doesn't yeah. it wasn't just absconded to mean something else that night. Yeah. So the Jesus cannot cannot override the Father's eternal instructions and the Passover is an eternal ordinance that we're to keep as as believers. So Jesus can't just make up a new meaning for that Passover. That That's that right. would be completely irregardless of that would be uh, outside of the parameters of keeping the commandments. So Yeah, Sean. I mean it, and it doesn't help that we have practically every translation of the scriptures out there have that dividing wall between the front of the book and the, you know, the first two thirds of the book and the latter third. And it's this new Testament, new covenant, right? Where it's, we're ingrained when we come to that, you know, that page as like, okay, everything on this side means we're in the new, that's the old, right? Yeah. And I love how Rob Skiba a few years back was just like, tear that thing out. Right. Like, Cause it, it totally throws people off. It really does. And it's it's put in in there from translators who, yes, they can translate the words. They know the, the ancient languages quite well, but that doesn't mean that automatically that goes hand in hand with understanding the con talk, like the overall context of, of the scriptures. Right. So, yeah. And that's actually one of our goals tonight is to show you all these mentions of the new covenant and the context around them, the actual descriptions and and, and implementation of the idea in the context of their mention and this will help us flesh out the timing of actually when this thing happens so that's where you want to run to the brug passage yep i will do that here okay first baruch chapter 2 31 to 35 and it says and shall know that i am the lord their god for i will give them an heart and ears to hear and they shall praise me in the land of their captivity and think upon my name and return from their stiff neck and from their wicked deeds. For they shall remember the way of their fathers, which sinned before the Lord. And I will bring them again into the land, which I promised with an oath unto their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they shall be lords over it. And I will increase them and they shall not be diminished. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them to be their God and they shall be my people. And I will no more drive my people of Israel out of the land that I have given them. So once again, yeah. Sean, I mean, we've got time qualifiers here, right? I mean, I, I believe that we're in that moment where we're in the, still in the captivity and we're starting to remember the way of the fathers. That's right. I mean, there's no way that that was only referring to the first century. No, because they, the, the, the people who were in captivity in Babylon, which that would be the time period of baruch right baruch being a contemporary with jeremiah which means baruch himself went into exile in babylon you know through a course of events and 
this is this is not because when we see Nehemiah in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and the, the exiles coming back from Babylon um, out of captivity, they haven't forgotten. I mean, they have the the priesthood hasn't forgotten the the ways of Yahweh. That's why they teach it to the regular people, right? And they remind them of everything what's going on. And there's a great mourning and a repentance that happens. Um, and that's already happened. That's already they've already been gathered in, and no no, no new covenant was made. They just re upped on the original covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know that was always been established. So there was no moment of let's make a new covenant with God. It was just simply okay. This is what we have not been doing. Let's get back to doing that. This yeah. is how we walk with God, right? And that's that's the whole concept of the the regathering that Baruch is talking about here is an end time regathering that we see parroted in Deuteronomy and many other places. That's right, and if, and it says that the Father Himself will bring them again into the land, right? And right. they're going to be lords over the land. We don't see that, guys. They we, weren't, we, yeah, they weren't like lords over the land when they returned from Babylon. Yeah, Babylon still owned them. <laughs> they were just allowed to come back and rebuild the temple and live back in their land again, but they were still under someone else's thumb. Exactly, and then we got the last sentence here where it says, "And I will no more drive my people of Israel out of the land." So that's right. that happened in 70 AD, that whole you know time frame there. So yeah. And of course events. we have this uh this little phrase here again, just like we read in the in the first one here in Jeremiah 31. I will make an everlasting covenant with them to be their God, and they shall be my people. So I want people to remind remember this phrase. We're gonna see this often because this is a phrase that he strongly associates with the new covenant all throughout scripture. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean Sean and I are actually going through um the books of baruch over on honor of kings and you know we're discussing how baruch and jeremiah obviously are contemporaries but they're you know they're being told the same message here guys okay you you're you're witnessing jerusalem and its destruction right now but you know be of good cheer there's going to be a day when i'm going to regather all of you back into the land and it's going to be by my hand right and so Jeremiah has this, obviously, this consistent message along with Baruch. So it would be, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's they're going to have the same type of prophetic utterances from the Father around the same time period, which makes total sense to me that this is what we see here in First Baruch as well as in Jeremiah 31. Yeah, it, it, we're going to just amplify this a little bit more, guys. So let's go to Deuteronomy. We're going to be in chapter 30. And Ken, if you'll do the honors of pulling up that slide, it'd be great, brother. Absolutely. Deuteronomy 30, 1 to 8. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all the commandments which I command you today. It's beautiful, Sean. I love I love every time I read that I get, you know, chills. Yeah. One of my favorite passages, not only does it mention the regathering of those who are scattered, 
But my favorite passage is probably the direct parallel with the idea of verse five or verse six, excuse me, talking about the circumcision of the heart. That's right. right? Well, God says, I will circumcise your heart for you. And this is the whole concept of Jeremiah 31, where we just read earlier, where he says, I'll write my law on your hearts. <laughs> so, right. so this is a contextual qualifier of the regathering. And at the end of days, uh, on the day of the Lord, uh, which Ken and I have done entire other episodes. Um, one was called Immortality in the End of Days. And that uh, you, you can check it out in the playlist here on Parable of Vineyard for the Road to Rescue. And that whole episode was devoted to the big component piece of the day of the Lord being the first resurrection. So this yeah. is this moment that uh, that we believe Jeremiah 31, Deuteronomy 30, Enoch 60, they're talking about the regathering of what's going on this day. And this is when he will write his laws on our hearts so that we will not have to learn them anymore and we will never fail to do them. Therefore, all of our sin and iniquity will be forgiven and remembered no more. And uh, because we literally will walk in his ways perpetually without fail, we will be made perfect as yeah. Hebrews 11 tells us. So that so. you may live, as Yahweh says, when he does all this, so that you may live and live eternally, which is amazing because, I mean, we can talk about what Yeshua and the uh, the rich man, you know, discuss when the rich man asks what he must do to have eternal life. And, you know, we've done episodes on that, guys, but it's, it's a fascinating little discussion there. And it points to doing the, the commandments and that you may live, right? Yeah. You may inherit eternal life. So, In fact, Ken, that was, I almost wanted to name this episode, uh, Do This and You Will Live. But I instead, I decided on the title that you, you saw, but um, because that hopefully to get people's minds thinking about this comment that we see throughout Deuteronomy and the Old Testament that Jesus is parroting in the New Testament. Because again, Old New Testament is just a page divider in the book. It doesn't mean that there's any any difference in doctrine, right? <laughs> because right. the epistle writers and Yeshua himself um, teach the same doctrine as Moses. So if you think they teach something different, it reveals that you don't understand what Moses taught. And this is the whole concept of doing this and you will live. Most God told Moses to tell all the Israelites, you, here's the behavior. Here's my behavior. I'm, I'm showing you how I live and how I breathe and how I behave. And if you do these things, you too will live. So there are plenty of faithful people that did do those things, but they're all dead. So is God a liar? Now, he was always talking about the resurrection. And this and this, we're actually going to prove that case throughout this uh, throughout this show as we dig into Genesis a little bit. Yeah, Sean, I just love how Jeremiah essentially juxtaposes the concept of the circumcision of the heart, right? In chapter, is it chapter four? I think it is where he yeah. talked about us doing it on our own hearts. And then yeah. later on from his own, well, his scribe Baruch was the one writing it, but from his own words later on, he says, then the father will do it. So this is, this is the whole concept of us doing it ourselves now. And we get to do that through the guidance of the spirit, right? The guaranteed deposit that we have now, that helps guide us along to do that. And and this is called the sanctification process, guys. We won't have to do that at, at the juncture of Jeremiah 31, at the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, where Yahweh literally does this for us on our hearts because we're going to instinctively, automatically obey his commandments. And then we won't fail at all, which is a huge promise. This is a, a huge part of you know the day of the Lord and the promise of the resurrection and what it's going to be like. So... Just consider that Jeremiah 4 and Jeremiah 31, how there's two different types of circumcision of the heart. Um, Ken, uh, my wife is telling me that the broadcast um, was severely messed up in the beginning. So I'm not sure what's happening, brother, but uh, 
I, I, I don't know if it's user error on my, on our side or my side or, or what's happening here, but um, I guess people didn't see the entire opening to the show. Oh, okay. So, um, I'm honestly, guys, I apologize if you if you didn't see the opening of the show at this point in the broadcast. Twenty minutes in, I'm not sure how to go back and change that since it's live. Uh, it's just another another issue with going live is that you know if there are any, any technical difficulties, you know we can't go back and really and really edit anything. So yeah, um, did uh, yeah, did Lindsay say guess. how far in we were? Nothing I, like I, that. Eh? I don't know, brother. Okay. Um, I, I don't know, honestly. So I think at this point, look, um, we just want to let everybody know that this is uh, this is you're currently watching the Road to Rescue here on Parable of the Vineyard, and tonight we're discussing the topic: Are you in the New Covenant? And we're going through all the scriptures that are going to help us understand the context of that of that concept, the New Covenant. And so, um, Ken, I'm sorry to not be able to, to add on to your last point, but um, I just was having that brought to my attention and. So no, that's I, all good. I was belaboring anyway. So, um, all right. Well, we'll just keep going. Okay. Yeah. Do you have the next slide? Are you able to uh, to cast that up? Yep, pulling it up right now. I appreciate you, brother. You know, if and if need be, depending on how this episode turns out at the end, when we see it again, we might revisit it and and try again, or at least address some of the beginning parts of the the episode. So. All right, so we're in Matthew 26 now, guys. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here we go, guys. We got, um, you know, <laughs> all my life I was told that this is talking about communion, you know, the Roman Catholic communion or Eucharist. That's going on here, but uh, I don't see it that way. Yeah, I, I don't either. Um, personally, not only is it not communion, this is a Passover meal, and we get that clearly told us like five different times in the book of yeah. Matthew. That they're having a Passover meal. This isn't just some special communion for the Last Supper. That's a Catholic idea. Uh, they're actually celebrating the feast, an eternal feast, in Exodus 12, called Passover, and that's um, uh, and this is where they would traditionally have bread and wine at Passover with with other traditional uh, meals. Um, so this is nothing out of the ordinary for <laughs> for these Hebrews to be doing this meal, uh, which is why they're about to. It's even called the uh, the first of unleavened bread because Passover was the beginning of the unleavened bread seven day period. Right. And that right. this was technically the eighth, the beginning day, but it was, you know, if you were being technical and trying to count, it'd be eight because after this day, they celebrated seven days of unleavened bread. So this is a, this is not any kind of Catholic concept. And, but the bigger reason of, of bringing this up, because I just want people to understand guys that Yeshua did not, he did not ever promote cannibalism. Okay. So he is that, that against God's laws, that against his instructions for living in righteousness and holiness. So that so many people have said, "Oh, look, he's he's <laughs> he's literally talking about eating eating his body, drinking his blood." Now this is this is metaphor. He's talking about a concept of of and how he equates that metaphor to saying, even within this passage, "Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for." 
forgiveness of sins. And people immediately say, see, look, you're in new covenant right there. Because other translations, as we're going to get to, I think the one in Luke, he actually, they actually put in this, this poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Yeah. 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 This is definitely not transubstantiation. Right. At all. He's just basically telling them. Ken, you might want to explain what that word's about. Well, once again, it is a Roman Catholic um, you know, word for them to kind of tell you that it's the conversion of Yeshua's body and blood of Christ. It like literally changes the form or the substance into something different. So it's like they think that they're actually partaking in of it. Like literally, it changes yeah. somehow, metaphysically changes when you take of it. And so this is not what you're referring to at all. <laughs> no, that's not. Because that whole concept of transassociation, what you just explained, the definition of is literally occult practices of drinking blood. They think right. that drinking blood does something to you. And if you guys aren't aware of the practices of Catholicism, it's straight paganism. It, they don't follow the scriptures. <laughs> Just because they use the same church terminology, they, they're not actually practicing the ways of Yahweh. Um, it's a very occultic organization that does occultic things. And so they've just taken these terms and try to gloss them over onto the Hebraic understanding of faith with, with God. And, and this is, yeah. So just, we just want people to understand this is nuts. Um, this is, this is not out of the ordinary. This last supper was simply a Passover meal. Exactly. And he's just telling them he's, that this is the symbolism here, right? This is my yeah. body. This is this, exactly like the bread. This is my body. This drink is my blood. It just symbolizes what he's going to do for you. Right. And that's, that's all it is. That's, that's so. really all it is. So brother, would you be prepared to pull up the next one? I can do that. We're in Luke 22, right, Sean? That's right. Luke 22, I believe it's 14 through 22. All right. So when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Poor Judas. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the one thing I wanted to focus real quick, though, on this particular passage and why it's included is because as opposed to the Matthew 26, 26 through 29 passage we just looked at, which is its parallel, this part in Luke actually has Jesus saying, this blood is the new covenant, right? This cup is the new covenant of my blood that is poured out for you. Okay. So, again, all covenants in Scripture are established by a animal sacrifice between man and God. Okay. Yeshua dying on the cross does not fulfill the requirements that God gave mankind to set up a covenant sacrifice. So this is why he's speaking metaphorically about his action of obedience, even unto death on a cross. We spoke about this, you know, in several other shows. It, it, the, that's why the book of Hebrews actually takes the time to explain to us 
exactly what type of obedience that Yeshua was exemplifying, being without sin and being the son of God who came in the flesh to really realize that he had to be obedient unto death so that he could accomplish this and earn his priesthood. So if Yeshua is our priest, you cannot have the priest also be the sacrifice. Okay. Right. So you're, this is the whole concept of remembering the context of terms that we deal with in scripture. Yeshua was always prophesied to be a priest. Yes. He laid his life down and metaphorically he's referred to as a sacrifice. He, but the father does not prescribe or command literal human sacrifice. The, the sacrifice of Yeshua was one of obedience unto death on the cross, even that extent of obedience, right? Which is why we have this moment, Matthew, in the garden, right? Where he's praying, if there's any other way, let this happen. But if not, your will be done, not, not my will be done, right? Because he knew that he was about to be betrayed and murdered, not that he was going to be put up on an altar by a priest and sacrificed for a covenant meal. That's right. Yeah. Does that make sense, he knew, guys? He knew the scriptures that were you know describing in great detail kind of what he was going to be essentially fulfilling through his death right he would he would this is why hebrews and we're actually going to get to hebrews 8 at, you know here in a few slides but this is why hebrews talks about him being the mediator of a better covenant not being the <laughs> the literal sacrifice of the better covenant okay so a covenant meal was a meal that was had so he's having a passover meal which is already representative of something that God has already established in great detail. Already, the Father has told us through his prophets that Jesus was prophesied to be a high priest in the Melchizedek order, which means he's representing as an intermediary, a mediator between mankind and God for atonement. And a priest does a prescribed lawful altar sacrifice to create a meal so that men can have a have a meal in the presence of the Father. And this is whole points of this is the context of a covenant meal, right? We don't and this and, and I, I like the reason I include the Matthew 26 part, Ken, is because he talks about how this is fulfilled in the kingdom. And then in Luke 22 here, he talks about it as well. So yeah. the Passover itself, the, the meaning of the of the meal of the Passover, which is the moment they're having there, that is the day of the Lord. The Passover, the day of the Lord is a huge Passover event where the righteous are spared and the wicked are punished, which is, which is a huge fulfillment of the actual symbolism of the Passover that happened in the Exodus. This is why it's an eternal ordinance. And it's even going to be used after the day of the Lord and later reign, as Ezekiel 45, 17 tells us, where we're continuing to keep that as remembrance. But right now, it's, it's not just remembrance about the, the Exodus. It's an, it's an expectation of the day of the Lord where it is finally fulfilled, as Jesus explains to us in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And at the same time, he's actually trying to express, by the way, this, this blood, this wine that we're drinking is metaphorized for, our, for my blood, which is of the new covenant, right? Well, God doesn't accept blood sacrifices. So how could, how could Yeshua actually point to wine and say, this is my blood, right? That doesn't make any sense to any of the context given down or any of the instructions of God given for a priest, an altar sacrifice, or a covenant meal made with him. So the whole point of his blood is that the purity that is within him because he was sinless. Exactly. allows his blood to have power and authority to give him that position as a high priest who can then make atonement and mediate for us and bring us into this new covenant where we will have a covenant meal. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beautifully stated, Sean. And this is the whole purpose behind the unblemished lamb practice, right? To bring an unblemished lamb because like Yeshua in figurative form, 
he was the unblemished lamb of God that, you know, John uh, the Baptist had prophesied about. And um, yeah, it's, I know, think Paul so he, Corinthians five calls him, our, calls Jesus our Passover lamb. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, you know, he exemplifies that through a sinless life, right? So he was completely untainted. He did not transgress Yahweh's commandments one time, which right. is why his blood is able to resurrect, like because of that whole thing and his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection is why that's referred to as a covenant and how that gets fulfilled in the, in the um, millennium at the day of the Lord when we get to resurrect as well because of what he did sinlessly, obediently going to the cross to die and then being resurrected. So it's, it's an amazing, amazing promise. And, and really, this whole fulfillment of the new covenant is the promise of the quote-unquote old covenant. Remember, it's do these, these instructions and you will live. Well, the context we've already given you is the regathering unto eternal life on the day of the Lord for the new covenant to be enacted by the pure blood of Jesus, who is our high priest, who raises us with eternal atonement. Therefore, our sins are forgiven and remember no more. Right? He calls our name out on the day of the Lord, raises us into eternal life. So all this stuff is enacted at a specific time. The old covenant, quote unquote, determines the instructions of the old covenant given to all the patriarchs before us. They all had the same definitions of walking with God, which is to keep his commandments. And that's what we read about in great detail. In fact, real quick for the next few slides, let's just break down the, de the actual descriptions of the old covenant so we can, we can help people understand how there is no change in behavior from the old to the new. It's just a change in the state of being of how you can keep it. So let's just uh, look real quick. Would you like to pull up the next slide, please? Absolutely, Sean. Thanks, brother. All right, we're in Deuteronomy 30. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Yeah, there it awesome is. Passage. Yeah, there it is, man. To prolong your days and um, for you and your descendants, right? So it's I love it how he just he's reminding him, choose life in order that you may live. Because <laughs> yeah. what does Jesus tell us, right? That we're not worried about the first death. We're worried, we're worried about the second death. Yeah, where That's the where soul you're... and the body can get cast yeah. into the lake of fire and extinguished. Yeah, yeah, we're we're not worried about that. The, the our faith and hope in Messiah is that He raises us up after the first death into eternal life, into a new body, and um, so we can live forever. And this is the concept here where He's talking about prolonging your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan, enter and possess it, because they crossed into the Jordan and possessed it. They prolonged their days. I mean, if we're if we're looking at literally the the kid, you know, children of Israel coming out of the Exodus, right? They crossed in there, but they eventually disobeyed. Their hearts were turned away, just as this verse says here, right? That you will not obey, but you will be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. And it says, surely you shall perish, right? 
Now, the people that didn't do that at different generational moments, are they still in the land? No, they died too. That's why the whole purpose that God, the, the greater context that God's always using when he's talking about perishing or living is eternally. You're either going to perish eternally in the lake of fire at the second death, or you get raised to eternal life and you get to live forever. And he's telling you, if you do my behavior, these commandments that I'm giving you today, these statutes and judgments, this is, this is the, the, the behavior of Yahweh. This is his, his ways are higher than our ways. Well, he, he told us what his ways are. He wrote them down so we can read them, study them, and apply them to our lives. And if we do these, then we will live. We will be raised to eternal life. This is why all the patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, all these guys, Joshua, they're all waiting on it. Samson, that's what Hebrews tells us. And in chapter 11, they're all waiting to be made perfect together with us at the great day of the Lord, the resurrection. That's so this beautiful. is, um, and this is just, he's just reminding them here, this is the same covenant that he, he um, gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So and the reason why I thought that's important for people to remember, Ken, is because so many people would like to claim that Mount Sinai was a covenant unto its own. It was separate from Abraham's covenant. It was somehow different. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's all the same. It it's is. All yeah. Yeah. This unfortunately, is this is just what we're, we're taught growing up, right? Yeah. And, and we don't test it. And we just think that, well, it must be true because the pastor's, you know, he gets paid a nice salary and maybe it's got to be true, you know? So why would I have to test anything? But it's interesting when you start looking at the scriptures yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it really comes alive when you start to understand. You know, these guys, they had the same instructions for living that we do today that Jesus himself followed, you know. And when you understand the descriptions of the new covenant that God introduced, you realize, oh, wait, it's the same descriptions of behavior. Yeah. So what's different? What's new about it? <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Yeah. And I, I just love what it says, for this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers the fathers that are then dead right That's they're dead exactly. at this moment and this is this is something that the first century jewish elite struggled understanding is that you know yeshua says that yahweh is not the god of the dead but of the living so and the implication here is that abraham isaac and jacob would literally take possession of the land at the resurrection which these people did not understand at all that's right so if you're in the mind like put yourself Playfully for two seconds, role play, put yourself in the mind of the people hearing this Deuteronomy 30 passage. So you're you're in the camp and Joshua's the leader, and there's millions of you, and, and Joshua's making this proclamation, reading off the, the final words of Moses through Deuteronomy, and you hear this read out to you. And um, in fact, I think it's the book of Deuteronomy itself is instructed every Sabbath, every seventh year to be read to the people. But that's a different story. But the point is, you're hearing this read and God's like, if you do these commandments, I'll prolong your days in the land where you're going to live. I'll be your God, and you will have do this, and you will live. And this is the same thing I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you think there was some kid that was like, wait a minute, they're dead, <laughs> right? Yeah, unfortunately, probably there was. And so, therefore, what would they say? What would they? How would they have to explain them? Because it's a valid question. If if you put yourself in their brain in that time period, in that moment, and you've got. You know, this this Elohim that you're told that is God that you're supposed to be worshiping. And he tells you, if you do this behavior and you act like this, you'll live in this land with your descendants forever. Because this is the same promise I gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's and right. Like, I love they're dead. How are they living forever? How are you not a liar? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so just to understand the old covenant that was promised to Abraham, which is the same one promised to Shem and Noah and, and the, all the way back to Adam. 
to understand this initial covenant, which was the concept of, look, Deuteronomy 8, 2, if you have, you know, I brought you out in the wilderness to test you, to, to see if it was in your heart to keep my commandments, which is his behavior, to keep his instructions for living. Yeah, amen. And the writer of Hebrews definitely remarks that, um, you know, Abraham, he, he knew that there was a resurrection. He was right. so confident to bring Isaac up on that mountain that he was like, well, if I do this, if I actually go through with this, then he must resurrect or something like there must be some type of resurrection. Right. So they, this wasn't a, a new concept that people understood only in the first century and onward. So, yeah, they, they had a grasp on it. Otherwise they would have never gone into covenant. That's right. So if you, and then let's just go to the next verses because it actually addresses that. So if you have a chance, we'll pull up Genesis 17, 6 through 8 in our next slide. All right. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God everlasting not a transient one for a few you know few years right (laughs) yeah yeah and and that's where when people that really study genesis 20 what 20 through 29 you start to see that abraham went down he didn't stay in the land of sojourning forever he tried to go to egypt at one point and he moved back isaac tried to go down to egypt and god said no no stay here and and even while he was there they called themselves sojourners in the land that's right and that wasn't just to mean that they were in someone else's foreign owned land this is they they understood the the role of promise and in fact um jubilees chapter 19 i believe is when sarah dies and abraham is trying to exp- buy the burial cave for from the sons of hats the hittites and um and he actually says you know to them even though he knew the land was his and going to be given to him forever he still didn't tell them about it and he just went and bought a burial cave for sarah anyway and paid full price for it because he didn't just walk in there and say, oh, no, the God of the creator of the universe has already given me this land, so you just need to give me what I want. This is my land anyway, and you're just done here by sedition anyway. No, he didn't say any of that stuff. He just was yeah. patient in spirit and, and gentle and humble and just played by their rules because he knew this was not the fulfillment of the promise. Same thing with Jacob. Jacob didn't stay in the land of promise forever either. He eventually, what did he do? He went down to Egypt. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. the even in the immediate generations that these things were promised to, they're not fulfilling the promise from God. The whole thing pointed to their, their resurrection and being brought into land for an eternal living. Exactly. And they had a, a proleptic understanding of, you know, the fulfillment of what it meant to take possession of the land. Right. And actually Sean and I are, are um, doing episodes right now, going through the apocalypse of Abraham, where he sees the land that was promised to him in, in this, uh, essentially a, not a vision, but this moment where he's taken up to where the father is and he's showing him the land. He's showing him oh, the day. Oh the- yeah. Yeah. It, it is a vision. You're right. It's, we know where he goes to sleep in Genesis 15. Yeah. 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 You're so, right. So yeah, I mean, he, he, he understood that he was a sojourner in the land and that That's there right. was a distant eschatological time where he would inhabit a different type of land within the same geographical boundaries that he was currently being a sojourner in. Yeah. That's why Genesis 15 gave him that promise saying from the, 
the river Euphrates uh, from the yeah the river Euphrates to the Nile, the brook of Egypt, and the, within that that geographical area was the land of promise. Yet they were already living there. Abraham lived there almost his whole life. And for he retired there, he did live there his whole life. I mean, not his whole life, but through the latter end of his life. Um, and Jacob was born in that land, and almost lived there his whole life, right? I'm not trying to get to the technical aspects of it, but the point is they still called themselves sojourners in that land. That's right. They knew that it wasn't yet theirs. It was promised to them as an inheritance, but it was not yet theirs. And they all were very well aware of the Messiah to come who would make it all a reality. And so that's why each of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all prophesied about the day of the Lord in the book of Jubilees. So yeah, but, you know, we didn't, book. Yeah, we didn't have enough time. I mean, we're already running. We're already not even, we're like halfway through our slides on this. And we didn't have enough time to include all those slides from Jubilees. That would have been like a three-hour show. So, um, yeah, we just, there's so much here, guys. So let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. All right. So we just want, just want to point out for the, I'm sorry, brother, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm just going to pull up the screen share while you're talking. All right, I just want to point out for the viewer, what we just read was what was promised initially to Abraham was to live everlasting in a land. And God says, I will be your God. Okay, it's a, that's that's what we just read in Deuteronomy 30, and it's what we also saw promised in its fulfillment to to us in the future in Jeremiah 31. So, yeah. but we'll just keep going to the next one. Yeah, this one's a short one. Uh, be, this is Genesis 26:5 because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Yeah, and like I've tried to summarize, you know, just in brief fashion, so so it makes it as easy as possible. This is just the father telling us that Abraham did his the behavior of the father. And he was faithful. And let's go to the next slide because it actually just backs up that same concept. Okay. All right. We're in Jubilees 2310 where it says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And behold, he did not complete four Jubilees in his life when he had grown old by reason of the wickedness and was full of his days. Yeah. So um, right here we have a, you know, parallel concept to Genesis 26, five, just commending and complimenting Abraham for being faithful, right? right? All the days of his life. Did he receive the promise? Cause that was the, that was the, the agreement, right? If you keep my statutes and my commands, I'll bring you into the land. I'll be your God. And you can be here forever with your descendants. Did we see Abraham get that? Is he there today? No, he's not. <laughs> he's waiting the resurrection like everyone else in Sheol. You know what I'm saying? And, and guys, if you haven't seen our, our Road to Rescue where we break down Shul for you and what that's about, uh, you can go. It's it's actually called Hell Matters is the title of the episode. Uh, Hell is the loose translated word for Sheol in the English. But okay. we, I think that was episode like four or five we did on this, the Road to Rescue. Again, you can just go to the playlist here on the channel for the Road to Rescue and you can find that episode. And we just been like two hours breaking down Sheol. Yeah, we also did that on Honor of Kings as well. I think what was the title of that one? Sheol, Tartarus, and the Prison of the Stars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. that was another another good episode too. All right, we'll move along, Sean. Yeah. So the the point of showing you those Genesis twenty six five and Jubilees twenty three ten is that Abraham kept the covenant faithfully, but he didn't get the promise of the of the covenant. That's so right. this is where because the the fulfillment of that covenant given to Abraham is Jeremiah thirty one moment where we all get it together at the resurrection. <laughs> all right. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So right in Deuteronomy 6.25, it says, It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before Yahweh our God, just as he commanded us. 
And all this is about basically is just a reiteration of what the Bible defines as righteousness. So we just saw Jubilees 23.10 call Abraham righteous. And Genesis 26.5 reaffirmed to us that he faithfully did all the commandments of the Father, his statutes, precepts, laws, and judgments, which is righteousness. Okay, this is the concept. He followed the commandments, therefore he was righteous, which is why Jubilees 23.10 called him perfect in his deeds. So this concept here is that he actually followed the Father's ways. Therefore, if anyone in all of Scripture besides Yeshua would have been guaranteed the fulfillment of an agreement with him between God, Abraham stands out as an amazingly faithful person. And he, even he has not yet received the full promise of the covenant given it to him. And that covenant is what we read in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 30. We get this circumcised heart where his laws are written on our heart. We're not practicing them anymore. We just do them without fail. Right? This is the, the beauty of this new creation body that we're going to get and that we're taken into his land and he will be our God. And we all know what his land is. It's Zion. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the, you know, the promised land, which none of us have seen yet. So exactly. Yeah. And I, John, I love Jubilees. It's such an integral book because it makes much more sense of Genesis 26, five, right? Where it's a little ambiguous as to like, okay, well, if he, obeyed the laws and the statutes and the commandments and ordinances well how is that possible which ones because wasn't the law implemented at mount sinai only so this this is the beauty of this book of jubilees which is another reason why it makes sense if you're gonna have a nefarious agenda to remove books you'd want to get rid of this one because it shows that abraham and jacob and no, uh, everyone essentially had these instructions, right? And right. and Abraham was learning through Shem and Noah the instructions of the same commandments that were written down at Mount Sinai. So we have this consistent, from start to finish, idea that Yahweh's law is an eternal thing, which is what the Ju Book of Jubilees says, and that even the angels in the heavens obey these laws too. That's so, right. Yeah, this in fact, Jubilees chapter seven tells us that when Noah got off the boat, he was teaching his sons and his grandchildren. As time went on, he was teaching them to love the Lord, the God, with all their hearts, their strength, and mind, and to love their neighbors yourself. Where have we heard that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so like you know, this we we know that. Yeah, that that was what Jesus summed up as the two great that all the other law and the prophets hang on those two ideas, those two commandments, and we see Noah teaching his sons and grandchildren that right off the boat in Jubilees chapter seven. So. Yeah, that's right. Love it. Okay, man, I'm going to screen share the next one here. Thanks, brother. So we're in Romans, guys. Paul here, chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. And guys, I just want to say that the word here at the beginning for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. It's kind of, it's not the greatest word to use. If you actually go into the the um, the Greek there, in my opinion, the word goal is is better um, suited for the, the context of what Paul's saying here. Would you say that as well, Sean? Yeah, it's in the Greek there. It means the principal aim, the purpose, the goal. It doesn't mean it's it's the the finality of it, as in it's not applicable anymore. Because of course Jesus told us the law will never go away in John and Matthew five uh, seventeen through twenty. That's but right. um, 
you know, what is it? Psalm 119, 160, that his, his law is eternal. It's not going yeah. away. That's a so, common, that's one that gets thrown at, you know, yeah. I'm sure a lot of us here who, who try to, um, you know, obey Yahweh's commandments. We get this one thrown in our faces a lot. Well, right here, for Christ is the end of the law. There you go. No more law. Now we just, it's just on our hearts now. Now we just kind of do it um, randomly, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and what that word is in the Greek is simply saying, for Christ is the aim, the end aim. It's the end goal, right? It's what you strive to become. He did it perfectly. Christ did it without sinning. So and, and it calls it the law of righteousness to everyone who believes, right? Because the whole point was you are practicing righteousness. This is why the very next statement says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. And that and that point of that's a transitional moment. This is exactly what we were reading in the promised Abraham, also repeated in Deuteronomy 30, which is this concept that here's my commandments, practice these and do these, and you will live. And the living part is the concept referred to as the resurrection, which is actually, you know, what he's talking about in verse 10, where he says that is the word of faith, which we are preaching um, where he, or excuse me, verse eight, because he's talking about this idea of it's a, there's a righteousness based on faith, which is that we will be made in the perfect. If righteousness is defined as we read in Deuteronomy 625, as those who keep the commandments of God and Moses encouraged us through Deuteronomy 30, that we need to practice those which means when you're practicing something, you don't have it down perfectly. That's why Christ did it perfectly. He is the end goal for that for that practice of that behavior. And that behavior is granted to us perfectly with our new hearts, as Jeremiah 31 and Deuteronomy 30 talk about, that his law is written on our hearts. He circumcises our hearts for us so that we are doing this behavior and we don't have to practice it anymore. This is the word of faith, the faith being that we will be granted that type of existence, that type of heart at the resurrection. That is the concept of which is that when where Moses says he writes that the man who practices the, the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. Amen. And that is the idea of it's, it's inherently throughout all the Old Testament, inherently referring to the resurrection to come where we get this, this perfected heart where we don't mess up anymore. Yeah, and so absolutely. this is the reason I brought this into is just to further amplify this idea that if we see Abraham being spoken of so highly, yet Paul tells us that Christ is actually the perfection of doing the deeds of the law, right, of the behavior of God, and that he reminds us that even Moses told us to practice this, and then we'll get to our eternal life state later. And that's that's the point of he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 30 in this passage. And that's what verses six through eight are talking about. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. Now, these inserted phrases in the parentheses, that's actually Paul's annotation as he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. That's this right, is right. why the the, uh, the other phrases from Deuteronomy 30 are actually they're all uh, capitalized. So the the um, regular font annotation within the parent, the parenthetical phrases those are him adding his own commentary to him citing Deuteronomy 30. And so this is why he's trying to explain to people, look, you will, you will be right. These are righteous behavior to practice the law, but you're going to get, you're going to live meaning eternal life in that righteousness forever because you've been practicing it here on this side. So this again, just further reiteration from Paul himself that the old covenant as he's quoting from Deuteronomy 30 is fulfilled in Christ as far as Christ did it perfectly. And the, the word of faith that we have, which is at the resurrection, is we get to do that behavior instinctively and without fail, as promised by God, also in Deuteronomy 30. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Spot on, Spot Sean. On. Um, um, 
This is the beauty of the new covenant is that like we no longer will need to practice right? right this righteousness, nor will we need to teach each other to practice this righteousness. <laughs> because right. as you guys have probably caught on to what we're saying here is that it's going to be part of our spiritual genetics at that point as the laws emblazoned upon our heart. I think uh, the apostle John said it best in first John three, where he says he who's born of God is without sin. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, we're, we're in faith. This word of faith that we have now is that we're waiting for the resurrection to be born of God. Right. So in faith, we believe ourselves to be renewed by his spirit to now suddenly walk in his ways. And so this is another little point real quick. I just wanted to bring up Ken, but in just in case people at this point are, are really trying to figure out, but that's why I was trying to harp in on some of these ideas of the definitions of the old covenant, quote unquote, old covenant, because it had through Yeshua, he did it perfectly, led a sinless life, obedient unto death, earned his priesthood, raised immortal in his new body, given the Melchizedek priesthood to make atonement for us, stands before the father doing a job for us. And as a result of that, he is now our high priest. But he's doing this. He's administering the same terms of covenant, the same laws. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So therefore, this is what allowed. Because the reason I'm saying this, Ken, is so many people bring up Acts two, and they say, "Oh, well, see, look, there's our moment where we have the new covenant as exemplified. We get the Spirit of God within us," and they think that's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. But all this is, guys, Acts two is actually a rehash. We see the Spirit fall on people in the Exodus back in the day, in the Book of Numbers, even. Like that's this right. isn't something new. This is this is just a greater outpouring because as Hebrews 9 tells us, we it's Hebrews actually chapter 7 through 9, we have a greater high priest who's perfected, not Aaron or his descendants who were imperfect and had to make atonement for themselves first, then come in and try to make atonement for the people. So now we have a greater high priest who's perfected and he can stand before the Father and he can make atonement for us. And there will be a conduit of a greater outpouring of the spirit. That's why Jesus said, it's better that I go. It's better that I go for you. For your sake, it's better that I go to the father. Right. I got to go because he wants to give us the helper. And you need a perfect mediator mediator to enable the Holy Spirit to flow from the father to mankind. Is, does that make any sense, Ken? hundred percent, man. I love it. It's good stuff. And you're right. I mean, he's he's mediating as a high priest. I mean, this is another term we throw around kind of loosely, right? Yeah, Jesus is our high priest, right? Well, high priests, what do they do? They mediate according to Allah, right? And we're told in Romans seven fourteen. What? So I'm sorry, brother. You cut out. They mediate according to what? To a, to the law. To the law. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so. What Paul says in Romans 7, 14, where he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin, sin being transgression of the law. He's saying right there that the law is spiritual, right? And which coincides with what we see in Jubilees that the law is eternal, a spiritual thing. It comes from literally the spiritual, you know, upper parts of the firmament. That's where right. Spirit beings reside. That's where it came forth from, right? So the law is literally spiritual, not in the sense of like, you know, spiritual, the way we kind of throw that another term around loosely. It's a what spiritual if, if, everlasting thing that cannot what if, be. So what, what if I, I'm just wanting a small insertion and I'll stop. What if uh, it's, if I could lovingly say, Paul saying the law is spiritual basically the, the the word spiritual meaning this is the behavior of spirit beings above the firmament exactly god included right the father included 
Right. And and the book of Enoch talk, talks about how, you know, the rebellious watchers that fell and defiled or fell, they rebelled and defiled themselves with human women and, um, you know, left their heavenly habitation. They were created spiritually um, like immortal, right? We're given the definition of what spiritual beings or this, this term spiritual is. It's immortal. It's like everlasting. It's perfect, right? So when we draw the comparison here to Romans with Paul saying that the law is spiritual, then, I mean, there's no need to, to abrogate or get rid of something that is eternal, that will never die, that is going to continue to be, um, you know, as we see in the millennial reign, it comes forth from Zion. It's, it's the law of Yahweh's land, of Yeshua's kingdom on the earth in that time. That's not going away. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's like, so if Christ did the, the behavior of the Father perfectly, and um, not only does the writer of Hebrews and the writer of Romans attest to that, do we think, and, we, and Hebrews 13 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what? You think, so he's the great teacher, the great shepherd, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Son of God who came to earth in flesh and, and became our Lord and King of Kings? You think that when he has a kingdom, he's going to behave differently? And he's yeah. suddenly not going to do the law of God perfectly and tell you to do the same, which is what he already told us in John chapter 14 and 15 and Matthew 5 and Luke 10 and a whole bunch of other places. Yeah. So it just blows my mind, this dispensational thought process that we've been taught over the years that tries. And that's and the reason why we're bringing up this concept of obedience and what that means is because it directly relates to how people misunderstand the new covenant. Exactly. The whole The introduction of the new covenant idea by the father through his prophets was the same behavior instructed of the Old Covenant. The only difference is the fulfillment promises of the Old Covenant are now a reality. And part of those promises is that you do this behavior instinctively and perfectly without fail. Right, as a resurrected immortal. That's amazing. That's right. That's right. All right. We'll move on, Sean. Yes. Okay. So this will be uh, Hebrews 8 is our next slide. All right, Hebrews 8, when he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, I kind of inflicted my inflicted my voice there on the word <laughs> Go uh, and just leave, this, just leave this one on the screen for a few oh, minutes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> just, just leave that one up there for a few minutes. Let people soak that one in for a second. So, yeah, I mean... When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So the tenses here, guys, pay attention to these tenses. The writer of the book of Hebrews is well past Yeshua's. Yeshua's already in heaven at this point, right? He's already ascended. So right. he's telling us that this new covenant that essentially doesn't nullify the previous, but it brings into the fulfillment the promises of the old. That is becoming obsolete. So it's becoming. It's a That's reality right. that takes change in form over a time period. And as we know contextually, that's all the way up until the point of the day of the Lord. And you know what's amazing about this passage in Hebrews 8, chapter 8, is that we're reading verse 13, which is the last verse in this chapter. But if you look at the previous three verses... The, the writer of Hebrews is literally quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Yeah, he is. The passage we started the show off with 
And the context of him making this statement in verse 13 is preceded by him quoting Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. That's right. And that, and he's, he's directly telling us here that the current covenant within is becoming old and growing obsolete, ready to disappear because the new one is on the way. And he already gave us the context for what that's going to look like in the previous verses. So the writer of Hebrews is directly telling us that we're not in the new covenant yet. That's right. And Sean, I think it's, um, is it the wisdom of Solomon or Sirach? One of those extra biblical books. It talks about how the covenant that we're all in now and have been since essentially Adam, this covenant that we term old covenant is a, a covenant that's made with mortals. It's a mortal covenant. So what we're that's saying right. here is, is in order for this covenant to become obsolete so that we can have the new covenant come in, that right. means that we have to no more be mortals. Absolutely. Another great qualifier, which is why Paul talks about in first Corinthians 15, that we're given incorruptible, immortal bodies at the resurrection. That's the right. only way we can even to have that covenant meal with him, which is the part of the new covenant. That's yeah. absolutely right, brother. Absolutely right. Right. So if you like these next few slides, we're just going to dig into the actual descriptions, some of these qualifiers of the actual new covenant to see the timing of it when it's fulfilled. And so how we can know and be sure what we're what's going on right now. All right, guys, we're in Enoch 1, 6 to 8, right at the beginning. <laughs> right at the beginning of the book of Enoch. Yeah, that's a great chapter. I love that. Yeah, it's so powerful. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish, and there shall be a judgment upon all men. But with the righteous, he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them. And they shall all belong to God, and they shall be prospered, and they shall all be blessed. And he will help them all, and light shall appear unto them, and he will make peace with them. Kim, before you take this off the screen, oh, sorry, okay. I did it again. Sorry, I, I'm trying to, yeah, the people might not be remembering everything we just read as we as we explain it to them real quick. But um, the, the whole point here is that he's telling them, I will, but with the righteous, he will make peace, right? That term. I know that we apply it immediately to Yeshua, but this is talking about an everlasting peace that we get at the resurrection. Again, we can go back to the previous videos that we've referenced here about that, where we've already done entire episodes on the resurrection. And he says he will protect the elect. We understand that's Isaiah 26, 20. We're brought into the new Jerusalem on this amazing day where the mountains are melting like wax, right? The whole earth is rent asunder. Um, and mercy shall be upon them, and they shall all belong to God. This is what we read in Jeremiah 31, where he's talking about, I will be their God, and you you will be my people. This was the same promise in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8 to Abraham. And they all shall be prospered, and they all shall be blessed, and he will, he will help them all. And light shall appear unto them, and he will make peace with them. This again is Revelation 22, verse 4, that the light of God will illumine us at the resurrection. That's right. Yeah, so that's a this, this is a... New Covenant, First Resurrection, Day of the Lord Fulfillment, wrapped up very succinctly in Enoch chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And Sean, when he says that he will make peace with them, that's actually, um, I believe it's in Ezekiel, where it talks about how the New Covenant is a covenant of peace. It's, that's what it's called. That's right. We're actually going to get those scriptures, I think, right next. Oh, we got those next, do we? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Should we go to them now, or do you want to? Let's go to, yeah, let's right. go to them now. Yeah. Cool. All right. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, 
but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands you bring, sorry, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh, sorry, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Stuff we just do not see yet, guys. Yeah. Not even close. Yeah. Not even close to this description, of none of the land or the fulfillment, none of it. Um, right. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have the chapter of Hebrews 6 uh, but warning people from falling away if you've already been cleansed from all your filthiness and your idols. That's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, so, yeah, this is, let's just go to Ezekiel 37 next because it just it just follows up perfectly and, and um, the people will probably get it. All right, Ezekiel 36. Then you so will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations i'm not doing this for your sake declares the lord god let it be known to you be ashamed and confounded for your ways o house of israel thus says the lord god on that day sorry on the day that i cleanse you from all your iniquities i will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the renew sorry, rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Amazing. Yeah, this is uh, a lot of a lot of uh, political fulfillment that is not apparent to us today, that we absolutely are not watching in, in reality today. So yeah, is, I don't I don't see how they've been cleansed from all their iniquities when we see yeah. such perversions in the land today. Yeah, and there's uh there's still desolate places in the land of promise. There's still waste cities that are barren, inhabited, covered in dirt. They're not rebuilt, they're not restored. And for furthermore, all this context, as we read from the beginning of Ezekiel 36 passage, is is this day of the Lord, this regathering, um, this this incredible moment here where as we read with all these other passages. Uh, the whole world is rent asunder. All the all the cities of the nations are destroyed. That's why, you know, we've talked about and other implications about what the angels do in the day of the Lord and how they clear out the land of promise, and therefore this new Jerusalem sets down. And within it, this massive landmass, you know, you have these villages and cities that are sitting basically on top of the previous geography of of a destroyed village. But then now they 
can rebuild it into um, their own domicile and their own residence within the New Jerusalem's walls because they're yeah. filled with resurrected saints who will never suffer famine and will never suffer strife or discord civilly and will be able to live in a harmonious peace with one another. Yeah, it'll be filled with flocks of men. It's awesome. That's right. I like how it, uh, the little wink here to the Garden of Eden. That's this, right. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. Yes, that's because the garden, the paradise of God, the new Jerusalem will be coming down and setting upon that, that land in those days. That's right. It's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, do you want to hit, I think th Ezekiel 37 is next. Okay. Excellent. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 23 says, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king over all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. So here we go. We got to, you know, obviously if we understand the history where we had the kingdom split into two, we got the northern and southern kingdom, the two, you know, the two sticks into the one hand, and, you know, into the father's hand as one. That hasn't happened yet at all. Not even close. No. Not even close. It hasn't happened. And nor we have this, this phrase again, I will be, uh, they will be my people. I will be their God after he cleanses them and they're no longer serving idols. Well, I mean, come on, guys. We get the the Supreme Court is worshiping Nimrod in Israel today. Yeah, you know, exactly. the, the, I mean, like the Illuminati symbolism of of pagan and occultic uh, symbolism architecture is all over the uh, this modern day city of Jerusalem today. So um, they're you still worshiping. You can't talk about Yeshua at all. You can't even. Yeah, you can't even talk about Messiah over there. Yeah. And it's, that's it's, the king that Ezekiel is talking about here. And one king will be yeah. king for all of them. Over that's the two right. nations that become one, right? So that's who, who that's who that's referring to. Yeah, and there's actually more. The next slide is is the continuation of this particular passage. There's more in there. Okay. All right, starting with verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. When his sanctuary is in their midst, Sean. Yep. Yahweh's sanctuary is not in it's not on this earth plane right now. Yep. So here I love this passage because we have all the same qualifiers that we've been talking about that we've been building throughout this last hour and 20 minutes. Right? We've got the eternal king be over them forever. Them and their descendants, the promise to, to uh, Abraham in Genesis 17 that they he and his descendants would live there forever. Right? That he will make a covenant of peace with them. It would be an everlasting covenant. We saw that from Enoch chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. I will place them and multiply them, set them in my sanctuary over them in their midst forever. Well, to place them and multiply them, we also saw that in Enoch chapter chapter 1, verse 6, or excuse me, verse 8, um, how he would prosper them. 
Um, and then also his sanctuary is set in their midst forever. We don't see that until the new Jerusalem comes down. And we see that fulfillment in Isaiah 60, uh, Isaiah 54, uh, <laughs> latter half of Isaiah 49, Revelation 21, 22, like all these other passages where these are time qualifiers for this covenant of peace to be enacted and take place. In addition exactly. to the qualifier that Ken has already mentioned, which is a state of existence qualifier, is that you cannot be immortal and enter into this covenant of peace. You have to be immortal with a new body and a state of heart qualifier from Deuteronomy 30 and also Jeremiah 31, repeated by Hebrews chapter 8. This idea of your heart has been circumcised to the Father, by the Father, not by you, by the Father. Right. So this is something that th these are all qualifiers from different areas that tell us directly that this covenant is not yet in place because none of these qualifiers are in place. Exactly. And um, the anti-missionary stance on this passage would be that, well, this is referring to literally David, right? King David. Yeah. It, I mean, guys, that's I mean, ignoring the resurrection, ignoring Sheol, ignoring, you know, exactly. All the it's, it's ignoring Psalm 16 where the Holy one will not undergo decay. David is not the Holy one in, in context. Um, and Peter's, basically says in Acts 2 that David's bones and it is still here with us today. I mean, he's still waiting for that promise, right? So this, in my opinion, is referring to Yeshua, right? By using this name, David, he's referred to as David and the branch and the Holy One. I mean, he's got tons of titles. So this is not, guys, this is not King David. Yeah, that's right, brother. Yeah. All right, we'll move on here to the next one, Sean. So this one, this next one here is just a, a fun... Um, a, a fun slide I put together because we're, the whole point of us is helping people understand the context of Jeremiah 31, even though it's not the first mention of the new covenant, nor is that the last mention of the new covenant, but it's the one that most people know of best, right? So most people who have been taught a misunderstanding of the timing of the new covenant usually have been taught it from Jeremiah 31, even though it's been caught, taught out of context. So the, the point of what I wanted to do was actually look at the entire chapter of Jeremiah 31. And I want to encourage the viewer to do this on their own at home. If they would look at verses one through 30, before we get the mention of the new, the new covenant itself, we have the descriptions of the regathering of the scattered, which is what we just read in so many other verses in the past hour. Okay. So except these 30 verses flesh out the descriptions of the regathering with great detail. So I want to encourage people to go into this chapter with the mindset that we're talking about right here, that this we are regathered at the resurrection into the land of promise, which is the, the new Jerusalem come down, which is going to be this beautiful land that's restored and beautiful. And we're going to have multiplied in flocks and men and people and cities. And it's going to be a wonderful, peaceful environment to live. And we see all those descriptions repeated and enhanced in verses 1 through 30 of Jeremiah 31. And then in verses 31 through 34, we get the description of the fulfillment of what is promised to us through from God through Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 through 8, which is what we discussed earlier. But if we go further and we read the rest of Jeremiah 31 in verses 35 through 40, we get a very distinct quali time qualifier, which disqualifies the last 2,000 years from being the fulfillment of the new covenant. And, I, and that's what our next slide is about. So we'll just go to that and read that one real quick. All right. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
if this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill of Gereb. Then it will turn to Goa and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all their fields. As far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. It's crazy. Forever. So here we have the father comparing in the first few verses eternal things, things fixed, the order of the moon, the stars, the order of the sun, right? Things that are fixed eternal in the heavens that cannot be moved or shaken, right? Things that will always be there, as also Jeremiah 33 reminds us as well. And then he's comparing that to saying, if you can do that, then suddenly I would cast off the offspring of Israel for all that I've done. But he's not going to do that, right? Because he's going to restore us, redeem us, bring us back to his house to live forever, as we just talked about in all these previous verses, which is the promise of the covenant, right? And this whole concept here is that then we get a rebuilding of these specific geographical areas, and they will be holy to the Lord, which means set apart, which means no uncircumcised person, no person practicing idolatry, paganism, no person who does not revere the Father and His Son and their authority and love them and walk in their commandments. No one will inhabit that area. In fact, those areas will be holy to the Lord, will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. And that has not happened in 2,000 years. That's right. In fact... I would suggest, to be honest with you, even since the Jeremiah 31 penned this, this information on the scroll, right? Put the, the pen to papyrus or whatever, that this has never been in fulfillment because we saw all the mass corruption and the, you know, happening in Judea, even during the days of Jesus, right? Where the Romans right. were trying to infiltrate through the Pharisees to keep them from walking in the ways of the Father. <laughs> but I mean, that's a, a little more specific description. The point is, there was, you know, how many thousands of years was the the promised land, even to today, it's not holy. It's not holy, to, nor is this specific area here in Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 39 and 40, about these gates and the specific areas within Jerusalem, nor any is that holy, right? That's right, because it's waiting for the, you know, the waters of the river of life to, to go out That's into right. those lands to heal it, right? That's right. And that only happens when the new Jerusalem comes down. Exactly. So this, this whole qualifier at the end of this book. So the very first 30 verses of Jeremiah 31 is expressing to us this beautiful scene about what happens when we are brought into the land of promise and we're flourishing and we're being prospered. And we have eternal life. And then he says, this is the new covenant. Your, his laws will be written on your heart. No one's going to have to teach each other to know the Lord because you're just going to know it instinctively already. And then he follows it up with another qualifier to say, they will never be cast out before me. If, if they would be, then you would have to override my fixed orders for the sun, moon, and stars. And furthermore, all this land that he just describes here will be holy unto the Lord forever. That's not happened. None of those qualifiers have happened. So the whole context of Jeremiah 31, before and after the famous passage that's taken out of context, tells us that this all happens on the day of the Lord, that Yeshua returns, takes care of the wicked, and then he brings down the new Jerusalem which is our promised land where the resurrected saints get to live. 
well stated, brother. So Absolutely. we've we've covered tonight several qualifiers, okay? Several several qualifiers, specific geographical qualifiers, time qualifiers, state of the heart qualifiers, state of your physical body qualifiers, right? And then also just the simple concept of the state of prophetic fulfillment of the day of the Lord qualifiers, which is layered throughout all those previous qualifiers I just mentioned. So we have a, a slew <laughs> of things that are all happening inter interconnected to each other. That is the context of this idea of the father saying, I'll make an everlasting covenant of peace with you where your, my instructions for living, my behavior is going to be written on your heart to the point where you will, you will never fail again. You'll be perfected. And your brother next to you, you and I have to teach him my ways because he's already known too. So this only happens when the resurrected saints come into the new Jerusalem. Exactly. Exactly. And so while we're in this and we're thanking ourselves through the process of learning, being discipled, yeah, sorry, brother. You're cutting out pretty bad. Yeah, I was actually. Um, I don't know what's going on with this. Anyways, sorry. I got derailed there. <laughs> all I heard was an echo. That's all right, man. I, I just, I think we've definitely, um, you know, we've definitely covered this topic really thoroughly. Um, and this is, these are some really powerful, powerful verses that we just, we would pray that people would take these to heart in as far as testing them for yourselves. Okay. So go through these verses that we spent tonight and that that's why we, we create slides. You can pause the video. You can look up the verse. Um, you can see us reading it on screen. You can match it up, right? That way you know that we're not just making this up. You can test these words for ourselves because this is the whole point of keeping things in context. Um, is so it helps you be better edified in your understanding of the Father, right? Which means that that understanding plays out in your life in a degree that benefits you, okay? It's called edification. And this whole concept of knowing what the Father has actually told us and promised us always brings edification into our life no matter what topic it is. Specifically, when it, in my opinion, when it's a topic that has to do with our high priest, who is the mediator of this better covenant that we're promised. So if just in understanding your Messiah better, this topic helps you, right? In appreciating your Messiah better, understanding the components of this new covenant topic will greatly expand your appreciation for the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, who is our Lord, our King, our Savior, and we give him all praise and glory. Yeah, amen. I, I remember what I was going to say, Sean. Okay, brother. Since we're in the flesh right now and we're sanctifying you know, ourselves through this process of being discipled and learning the commandments and doing them, the Father sees our heart and our, our desire to do what he calls loving him, right? As John says, that obeying the commandments is not burdensome and it's actually how we, how we love the Father. When he sees us doing that, we are promised in the resurrection to be a, a priests and kings, a nation of kings and priests. And what those do, they mediate the law to others, right? They teach the law to others. So if we have that desire right now in the flesh, in this covenant now, he sees that. And we're, we're told that we can have those types of positions in the kingdom when it comes. I want to do that. I, that's, that's my desire now in this flesh, in this covenant now. I want to do that in the resurrection. And because I love the Father and I want to do his ways. And I can't wait for that day when we can do things perfectly as Yeshua and it's going to be amazing. That's actually why in Jeremiah, that this verse we've been talking about this whole time, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where he says at the end that I'll write my laws in their hearts, right? So that they will not have to learn 
and teach each other to know the Lord, that from the least, from the greatest of them to the least of them, they will all know the Lord. Right? Yeah. This is this is the fulfillment of what Jesus explains in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He says, there will be those who teach against the commandments, and they teach, they don't keep the commandments, and they've taught others not to do it, and they'll be called least in the kingdom, right? Because the Father sees their heart. Yeshua is the judge. He gets to judge whether or not they get in or not, right? Because they've been taught fallacy. They've been taught deception, and um, and the Father knew that was coming. It was prophesied in Jeremiah and Jubilees 23 and Jubilees right. chapter 6, right? It was prophesied that they would forget the commandments. So the father knows that this was going to happen. That's why he can see the heart and make a determination anyway. On, on Deuteronomy 8 too, right? Is it in your heart to keep his commandments? Now, whether you were deceived in doing that in your physical lifetime or not, but just because you, you were under some bad teaching, right? Someone didn't understand the book they were trying to tell you, and they said, oh, you don't have to do the commandments. Well, the father saw your heart and knew that it was in your heart to do the commandments, so therefore he'll make that decision to raise you. You'll just be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But from the least of them to the greatest of them, those who did do the commandments and taught others to do the commandments are called the greatest, according to Yeshua. And Jeremiah 31 says, it doesn't matter which category you're in, from the least to the greatest, you'll all know his behavior and all do his laws. Right, and the, and the lesser position in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist while he was in the flesh, who was known as, you know, right. there's no man greater, right? So it's, right. it's, it's still a prestigious <laughs> promise right. because you're an immortal, right? That's, that's the implication yes. there. Yes, because you've been illumined by God. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So we just we just thank you for joining us, guys, here on the Road to Rescue. Um, we've hoped to have stated our case uh, just here. This idea of of the timing and the qualifiers of the new covenant and how it can it can help you in your understanding, your appreciation for the Messiah. And uh, we just man, we we love the opportunity here in the Parable of the Vineyard to share these scriptural truths with people and to dig into the scriptures. And you guys get to watch us do it because there are so many wonderful component pieces that matter to this famous moment that is repeated hundreds of times in scripture that's called the day of the Lord, which is our road to rescue. So we thank you for joining us here. And uh, Kenny, any concluding remarks? I had a great time as always, Sean. And uh, guys, we know that this stuff appears to be controversial. We're not doing it for controversy's sake. We're really not. These are just core concepts that are in the scriptures that really help us understand the scriptures as a whole and our inheritance to come as a whole. So as Sean has already said, we just pray that you'd be Bereans and test these things. Go to all the different scriptures that we've taken the time to put into slides and, you know, go over them yourselves and, and refer to the context that surrounds those verses, whatever you've got to do and prayerfully consider what we're we're discussing here because um you know we believe that this this is when the new covenant takes place which is on the day of the lord which is the whole purpose of this show the return of the you know our coming king and the road to rescue so we thank you for joining us and uh sorry for some of the technical glitches that were in this episode but we pray that you overlook those and just look at the content itself yeah, guys, and you can also catch Ken and I. We have our own YouTube channels, uh, even though we're guest hosts here on the Parable of Vineyard, and we're greatly appreciative to Adam for that. But um, my channel personally is called Kingdom in Context, and uh, you can find it on YouTube, and I do um, a lot of other shows and different concepts. Um, Ken, his show is called Hanging on His Words. Which is right there. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it's awesome. He's got some great videos as well. Uh, wonderful teachings, very easy to listen to. And then Ken and I together on, on my channel, Kingdom of Context, we do our own show on Saturday night. It's called Honor of Kings. You're welcome to come find us over there as well. 
So we greatly appreciate you and uh, we wish you a great night. Thanks guys.